gentlemen and corner kick fam welcome back once again to the corner kick podcast post champions league final edition and for the first time in a few weeks our front three is fully fit and firing and ready to go because i am joined <laughs> by a man who did not round ederson and score a goal in the champions league final in porto it is caleb rhodes hello but I did just have my first vegetable in almost a week. Uh, <laughs> Caleb really been enjoying his time away from the podcast oh on vacation. Let, let, me, let me just say, let me just say, you don't go to Myrtle Beach for the food. That is very true. Having, yeah, understandable. <laughs> having graced that that shoreline, I can, I can say that is very much the case. Um, I am. <laughs> I am also joined by a man who is not walking away from his managerial position at a top club. One of the very few, it seems, it is Nathan Strauss. Indeed. In fact, I'm staying put, uh, unlike most top managers these days, but we will get into that in a few minutes, I'm sure. Indeed. We are going to talk about a whole host of things. This is going to be a little bit of a looking behind us at the past week that was obviously several big finals, the Europa League final and the Champions League final taking place last week. But we're also going to be looking forward, as we mentioned off the top, a lot of managerial turnaround in the past couple of weeks, in the past few days. In fact, a lot of transfer turnaround in the past few days, some interesting moves we're going to talk about on this show. And we're going to do a a soft preview of Euro 2020, Euro 2021. I think we got to settle on which year we're going to call it, but maybe we'll do that as we get into the rhythm of this episode. But before we do any of that, lads, obviously the big topic of discussion this weekend was the Champions League final. It was the third meeting between Pep Guardiola and Thomas Tuchel and Manchester City and Chelsea in 2021. The past two had been won by the newly appointed German in London. And this matchup, I think, had a bit more intrigue because it's really, really difficult to beat the same team twice, let alone three times in a single season. Yet, that is what ended up happening. Some lineup controversy in the early goings, Caleb, with Pep Guardiola not deciding to play a defensive midfielder that, it turned out, left them wide open for Kai Havertz to score the winner and gift Chelsea a second European Cup. Yeah, so two points. Manchester City have played 60 games this season. In 59 of them, either Rodri or Fernandinho started. Only in the Champions League final did he decide, fuck it, we don't need a defensive midfielder, in a way that I think meant Gundogan couldn't play to his best ability and ultimately destabilized the team. But... Humor me one more Myrtle Beach story in relation to this. <laughs> um, I was on the hunt for a sports bar to watch this game. And I looked around at the uh, establishments in the area and said, you know, there's a Buffalo Wild Wings about a mile away. Surely, surely they have it. And so I called them, you know, because they're a sports bar. And after a long conversation where I had to explain what, the, what sport the Champions League final was, 
what teams were participating. <laughs> and after confirming that they do, in fact, have CBS, they were still like, no, we're not going to show that. That was very sad. But shout out to the bartender Toby at Pirate's Cove in North Myrtle Beach, who valiantly came to the rescue uh, so that I could watch the game. But back to Toby, the game itself. firmly established as a member of the Corner Kick fam going forward. Yeah, to- Toby was a real lad. Um, I'll give her that. But I think before this game, I predicted, or at least I texted you guys, and you guys read my prediction on the pod, that it was going to be Tuchel who would mess up the lineup. But I think Tuchel actually put out probably the most reasonable 11 that he could. And it was once again Guardiola a little bit tinkering just a just slightly but too much that kind of sunk the ship here i don't know what your guys' take is but i think not having fernandinho or rodri seemed both unnecessary and as it turned out deeply counterproductive yeah i think even more than that it's not just the lack of a defensive midfielder but also the lack of a, of a true striker because i think you can get away with one or the other and we know city have gone strikerless uh, over the course of a 38-game season, you know, I think it works for City because they are, you know, just by virtue of this tactic, by virtue of the quant- uh, the quality of players they have, they're able to sort of squeeze the life out of most teams they play. And of course, if you're getting results, you know, eight out of every 10 games, you know, that's that, that wins you a league. But in a game, a one-off game, a Champions League final, I think I would have preferred to see them start a true out-and-out striker. I don't think that these one-off games are the place to be experimenting. Um, and I think going without a true defensive midfielder and a striker in the same game is experimentation. I, I, I also predicted that I actually got both my predictions wrong in terms of the Europa League and the Champions League. Um, and it ended up being Tuchel who came out on top. And I, I think Pep, again, is still left uh, empty handed when it comes to, to winning the Champions League with a city team. I, yeah, I agree, Nathan. I think the pep discourse is a really like tough conversation to have because like quite honestly, it's like very hard to criticize him. He's had like one of the best careers in management of all time and is probably has like left a legacy just on the way that like the game is going to be played going forward for the next several decades, I would think. But I've never seen like a manager be his own worst enemy in the biggest spots, particularly in his time at Manchester City. I, I agree also with the sentiment that I think he this is not like the time to experiment. I think having a defensive midfielder allows City to build up like wave after wave of attacks. Like we know that the way they like to play is they like to to essentially just like pass you to death, progressive passes into the final third. And I think not having a DM and having Gundogan try and play that position. But also, like, Ilkay Gundogan has been the man making the runs in from deep this season, and he's reaped the benefits of his highest goal tally in a really long time. And I think that was a mistake. But I also think equally, like, if you're going to compromise your ideals for a game, like, go all in on that. Don't play a system that, you know, fed right into what Thomas Tuchel was trying to do and, like, having just, like, five City players go up against, like, the five Chelsea defenders. Like, if you're going to match Thomas Tuchel in an experimental system, maybe try, like, a three-at-the-back type of thing. Draft in Americ Laporte alongside Stones and Diaz. I don't know. I, I felt like it was a really... Int- this is a very interesting Guardiola overthink, quote-unquote, because I think he he stayed true to his ideals somewhat, but also, in some ways, maybe I felt like he didn't compromise enough to try and get a win finally against Thomas Tuchel. But that being said, I thought Chelsea were really impressive in this game. Once they settled in, they really settled in. They locked in. Reese James was immense. 
uh, it didn't matter what which player was switched on to him, whether it was De Bruyne, whether it was Foden, whether it was Sterling, and eventually Aguero. And I think you're you're starting to see the the true appreciation once again for a player like N'Golo Kante, who his stats in this game are absolutely <laughs> absurd. Uh, this man teleports around the field to uh, to pick your to pick the ball out of your pocket, and it's just. I mean, this 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 guy is one of the most intelligent players we will ever see and has to be, I think, when it's all said and done, uh, given the honors that he's going to be given as, as, a, as a player and with the teams that he's played for, probably one of the best midfielders of all time. I don't think that's too unreasonable a take. Going, going back to Pep for a second, we all know what his sort of fatal flaw is, which is overthinking. But I think what you raise, an interesting point, Nick, is that Tuchel has been the one manager perhaps like ever really to so consistently have his number that maybe, you know, changing things up would have been for the best at the same time though. It's just strange to think that Manchester city, that Pep Guardiola really thinks that he needs to change for Chelsea at all, because I think we can all agree man city were the favorites going into this final and that they have more quality in their squad and that they have more goals in their squad too. And we know that as good as Thomas Tuchel has been in terms of winning these big games, we also know that they're probably only going to score once. And so I think it's particularly damning against how City played that they couldn't score at all. And once again, credit to Chelsea that they were able to keep a clean sheet. I don't know. I, I, I'm I very conflicted on this, on, on whether like Guardiola really, really messed up or whether, yeah. I also think, I think it's fair to say that so certain players underperformed for City. I mean, you look at this game and City underperformed based on um, their season averages in terms of possession, in terms of high danger chances, um, pass success, et cetera, et cetera. I think some of that can be down to the fact that, you know, it's a final and it's always going to be a little cagey at times. And I think I actually was sort of worried that this game was going to be, Nick and I talked about it on our last pod, that I, that I worried that, that this game was going to be really quite, boring and i don't think it was as boring as i thought it was going to be i mean there definitely were definitely better than liverpool against tottenham oh, oh definitely and i mean to be fair that is like the singular lowest bar aside from portugal france 2016 when it comes to value for entertainment and finals it's you know <laughs> the fact that they weren't able to score is even worse when you consider the fact that you know tiago silva came out you know late in the first half for andreas christensen so they weren't even going up against a full strength chelsea back three or back five for for most of the game, but the Chelsea midfield four, and I think in particularly Chilwell, Conte and Reese James all really earned their stripes in this one. And I think Chilwell is someone who hasn't always been first choice this year, but the two English lads on the flank did an excellent job uh, in this game in particular. And we should also probably give some brief plaudits to Christian Pulisic, who became the first American man to win the champions league, despite not making the biggest contributions in, in, in coming on. He only played, you know, 23 or 24 minutes, but still a landmark for him. And I think there's certainly a ways to go for him in his game, but it's a good thing for, for Americans nonetheless. Can we give a quick shout out to Mateo Kovacic as well, <laughs> who won his <laughs> Champions League? He played 17 minutes across four finals. All 17 minutes were in this final after he was subbed on in the 80th minute. And he actually played win. pretty well, to be honest. Like he shepherded no, 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 the ball no, 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 really no, no, well no, no, in this game. No, 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 no. I, I mean no disrespect. 
I like Mateo Kovacic. In fact, I think he's better than Jorginho. I wanted him to start this game if he was fit. I just think it's funny. The man has four Champions Leagues. He won one when he was left out of the match day squad at Madrid. In two more Madrid wins, he didn't even make it off the bench. And this is his fourth one, and it's his first appearance in a Champions League final. Honestly, kind of great. Listen, my dad always says, you work smarter, not harder. <laughs> Mateo Kovacic is the perfect example of, of working smarter in the, the context of receiving see, UEFA Champions League. See, if City had won, we'd be having like the same conversation except about Ben Mendy. I, I think we also we haven't even talked about Kai Havertz yet. Has, has that goal? Do you think he's like he's back? I thought he was great. I thought he was great in this game. I really did. I thought he led the line so well. He really pulled. He had. I think him and Timo Werner had Stones's number, especially in the first half of this game, and it paid dividends with the goal. I think you could tell he was playing with a lot more confidence in this game. And there's something about knowing his role in the Tuchel system, especially since he was moved around a lot under Frank Lampard in the 4-3-3. I think he knows exactly what's expected of him in this 3-4-2-1 that Thomas Tuchel plays. And I think he will really make the jump uh, next season and improve. And I think we're starting to see like the the small foreshadowing of uh, a big season on the horizon for Kai Havertz. I think the person who I'd be more concerned for of the, the big signings that Chelsea made in the last year and a half is probably uh, Hakim Ziyech, who, you know, didn't get into this game um has i think less room to grow as a player just by virtue of being 28 years old instead of you know under the age of 21 i don't know i mean there's another great game from mason mount has definitely proved me wrong this year i was definitely not as high on him before this season as i am now and you know functionally kai Havertz, 21 years old he still has time to i think settle in and also he still has a bit to grow physically i think he looked a little light on his feet earlier on this year and i think now that he knows what role he's going to be playing that sort of I, I think this goal goes a long way in terms of redeeming his image and I think he he certainly has plenty of time to live up to his to his to his expectations yeah so maybe I think we're starting to enter a slightly different type of conversation but Chelsea won this game where do these teams go from here can do City have space to grow or have they peaked again this Chelsea team certainly seems like it has a lot more room to grow where do you guys see these teams next year and in the in the Champions League especially? I think I think City will will always be in and around of the conversation. I think maybe they won't be in the Champions League final next season depending on their activity in in the transfer window. We shall see. Like if they get Harry Kane, like yes, they're going to be a favorite for this competition again. This has got to feel super demoralizing if you're a Manchester City player cuz this was the chance, right? This was absolutely the chance. You are a team with incredible depth in a season in which like that has been a luxury uh, that has not been afforded to a lot of the teams around Europe. And they, they didn't do it in the final. I think for Chelsea, Thomas Tuchel, <laughs> this, this is genuinely, I think, the greatest in-season managerial appointment of all time. If you think about what he was able to achieve, he did not know this. A lot of players on this team... You know, he knew Christian Pulisic, he knew Thiago Silva. I think he probably knew of a few of the German players. Antonio Rudiger is definitely someone who he tried to sign for PSG last season. But he's really only known these players for less than five months. And he's already beaten a Carlo Ancelotti, 
Jurgen Klopp, Diego Simeone, Zinedine Zidane, Pep Guardiola three times. This team is not even like in its final form. It's like Dragon Ball Z. It's like this team is like not yet in its final form. They're playing so well and organized. Everyone knows their role. He's elevating the likes of Antonio Rudiger, making players like Jorginho look incredibly competent, even though I think they've been like super disappointing at Chelsea. Uh, he's utilizing his players off the bench really well. Like, obviously, we all want to see Christian Pulisic start, but Thomas Tuchel clearly has identified him as a player who can contribute coming off the bench, and he's done that really effectively. And I think all they need now is a striker to be a really formidable out in the Premier League next season because it's pretty clear that it's going to be really challenging to score on this team. Yeah, I think it's very interesting because the needs for these two teams in the summer are very similar in my book. Like City have spent so much money on their defense over the last three years. I forget what the figure is, but it's over 300 million pounds, I think, since Guardiola, maybe since 2016 or 17. And I think, you know, with with Ruben Diaz and, and Kyle Walker and I'm Eric Laporte and Nathan Ake and Cancelo, they have plenty of capable defenders and i think for once you know with the departure of aguero for good um and with I, I don't know if it's fair to say the plateauing of gabriel jesus because i think maybe he was just one of those players who scored a bunch of goals as a youngster but never was projected to sort of reach the greatest of heights yeah so i think both of these teams their next big purchase has to be a striker there are two almost typecast players that I think each of these teams should be targeting. And I did talk about this a little bit a few weeks ago, but I do think Man City should pony up for Harry Kane. I just think it's the most logical and best value transfer that they could possibly make. And obviously, I think Chelsea should try to sign Harry Kane as well, but that's not going to happen because of the whole Chelsea Spurs thing. And as Nick and I talked about briefly uh, before the pod, I think that Chelsea should sign Romelu Lukaku for whatever the price. Well, yeah, we'll get on to Lukaku when we talk about Conte and Inter Antonio that yes. is not in goal. But, but in terms of but in terms of where these teams go from here, I think they both sign I think they both need to sign strikers, but City are still, you know, overwhelmingly a young team. Um and I think Chelsea have shown in the Chelsea last are younger. 5 months. I think the thing with Chelsea and I'm interested to hear, hear what you think about this Caleb because you asked about the Kai Havertz point of it all. Yeah. I think they have they have a good I think they are definitely a young team. I think that's what made the project so appealing for Frank Lampard to take over in the first place. And he sort of abandoned that a little bit this season as he got into a bit more trouble with results. But I think the core of this team, you look at Mason Mount, you look at Kai Havertz, you look at Reese James, you look at Ben Chilwell, you even look at Timo Werner, who's not old by any who's not even, you know hit his peak by any means. He's, what, 24 or 25 years old. Christian Pulisic. I think the players who are going to be stars for this Chelsea team have have just won a Champions League without even coming into, you know, their primes as players on this squad. And I think that is an extremely dangerous thing for the rest of the Premier League and for the rest of Europe, especially since Thomas Tuchel looks to be really settling in in, the, in this system. And I think that meeting with Roman Abramovich on the pitch after the game was really interesting because that's that's a great time to like meet your boss for the first time and sort of reinforce the fact that like, hey, I would like to stay. I would like a long term contract and I would like the money to build on this project and get us back here again next season. No, I think 
Chelsea have a lot of room to go. They probably need another center back unless they think Kurt Zuma and Christensen can really be ready replacements for Silva and Azpilicueta. But I think everywhere else on the field, they're totally fine. I mean, Conte is 30, but the way he's moving, he could go for another like six years. And also with him, you have to remember that he's only made 380 or so career appearances because he started his career kind of late. So I, I think that this Chelsea team has a very, very long runway. I think the City team also has several young players, but their key players, a.k.a. like Kevin De Bruyne, are now getting close to that 30 mark. And so I think someone like Harry Kane, if they bring him in, will give them that like two to three year more window to get things done because I think this generation is starting to to, to peak slightly. Kyle Walker, also 30 plus. But perhaps we've spent... Oh, wait, I have one more question mm. about this. Um, not really about chancers, but this is the second time we've seen Chelsea win the Champions League. Both times they have had you know mediocre seasons. They've replaced um, their manager mid-year and then gone on to somewhat improbably succeed. How do you rank this Champions League victory versus the, what was it, 2012 victory against Bayern Munich? The 2012 one is better because... And, and the I team think was way worse. The team was way worse. They started Ryan Bertrand in that game. It was no offense. In, no offense to Ryan Bertrand. You know, great professional, great left back. They were playing Bayern Munich in Munich in Bayern's own backyard. And their manager was Roberto Di Matteo, who is nowhere near, you know, the quality of Thomas Tuchel, indicated by the fact that he was sacked a few months later. A few months later. Yeah. So I think... And also I think the first time you win the first time you win the Champions League is always going to be like the best time and I think for Chelsea like that was really the point of validation for like the 8 years that Roman Abramovich had owned the club up to that point. Yeah, and also I think looking at the lineups for that game, I mean Jose Bosingwa was the starting right back. Solomon Kalou started for Chelsea in that game going up against prime Schweinsteiger, prime Philip Lahm, Neuer, Boateng, Kroos, Arian Robin and Frank Ribery in the year that I think they that they were both uh, Ballon d'Or contenders, and then Mario Gomez, who was coming off I think a twenty goal season in the Bundesliga in at the Allianz Arena. So, yeah, yeah I think really that, just that was a fucking more... disaster for Bayern Munich that they did. Yeah, but, so, but also, but also, but also, Bayern did dominate that game. Like it really was a sort of ex machina goal from Drogba that saved them. Yeah, I think that that victory is probably a little bit more impressive just given all of the circumstances that we just outlined. But that's a good question. Yeah, actually. I mean, that, I that game that. is Chelsea's Istanbul moment. Like, the game that they never should have won, but they ended up somehow pulling it out of the bag. But I think, Caleb, you were about to get on to our next topic, which is the Europa League. I don't think we'll spend too much time talking about this. <laughs> but uh, I, I'll just be up front. This game was hilarious. <laughs> um, uh, it was finished one all between Villarreal and Manchester United uh, after which followed potentially the greatest penalty shootout of all time I don't think you're ever going to see uh, 21 more incredible penalties in a shootout and then David De Gea misses the 22nd one gifting Villarreal a town with a population of just about 50,000 their first ever 
massive or the first ever major European trophy. Nathan, I really enjoyed this game. I heard people thought it was, you know, a little boring. I definitely could see that. But as as a fan who was relishing in the um the craptacular that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was putting on, you know, not making a single sub in the 90 minutes of the match. Uh, United really just could not break down Villarreal, uh, Villarreal's defensive lines at all. And a, a massive, you know, redemptive arc at the end of this season for Unai Emery, who is now the winningest manager. I think he was already, but he is now firmly established as probably the greatest ever manager in Europa League Um UEFA Cup history. Yeah, I mean, I think this game really did suck. I think it sucked more than the Champions League final. It was really <laughs> unpleasant viewing. This game is interesting, though, because I feel like a lot of the time, come extra time and come penalty shootouts, my stress goes up. But weirdly, my stress level went like way down as soon as the 90 minutes were up because I was like, okay, no, neither of these teams is scoring an extra time. Like there's a 100% chance it's going to penalties. And lo and behold, it did. And it also, I think the entertainment value peaked with every successive round of the shootout because no one missed. Like I have never seen that before. It looks like what happens if you set two teams on FIFA to beginner mode and then had them play each other in a penalty shootout. And I do think it's hilarious that De Gea was the one who lost it. Like, I am fully sympathetic because goalies should not be the ones responsible for, you know, scoring the game-winning penalty or the game at that point would have been the game uh, elongating penalty. He also hasn't but, saved a penalty since, like, 2016. Right. So this is somewhat on him. Yeah, oh, no, of course. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this game really did kind of suck. Moreno scoring made it a little bit exciting. Uh, but then as soon as, as soon as Emery brought Coughlin on for a striker in the 60th minute, I was like, yeah, this is going to be brutal. And then for whatever reason, I just don't understand why Ole didn't go to the bench for a hundred minutes of this game, especially when you had guys like even a guy like Donnie van de Beek or someone who could stretch the game like Dan James. And when your first substitution is bringing on Fred in the hundredth minute, and then you eventually take off Paul Pogba, in the 116th minute. I just don't get it. Um, and so I think a lot of this game is on mismanagement from Ole. And a lot of it is just down to Unai Emery has prepared his teams to shithouse their way and just delay, delay, delay. You know, they ended up converting on 11 straight penalties. So, so kudos to them. Yeah, Caleb, I think this is the question following <laughs> this game. And we've been impressed with, I think, just the overall development of Manchester United under Ole obviously finishing second in the Premier League is an accomplishment I think the big question is we know Ole is good I think this game exposed that he's probably not good enough to win trophies at Manchester United yeah this is a massive missed opportunity like we can we can blame De Gea all we want for like not following the instructions on like which side players tend to shoot at although I'm not sure how valuable that is. We can blame him for missing his penalty. But really the fact that the second place team in the Premier League couldn't beat the seventh place team in La Liga in regular time is somewhat embarrassing. And at the end of the day, Ole is deeply responsible for that. I do want to shout out though, Gerard Moreno, who had a bonkers season. He is now the all-time top scorer for Villarreal, passing Giuseppe Rossi. He had 30 goals and 11 assists in 46 games this year. He was one of the highest scoring players in 2021. He was a truly elite striker. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how he carries on at the Euros. But back to Manchester United. 
this was just simply not good enough. Maybe we'll get to the sort of transfers and managers soon, but there are a lot of good big name managers available this summer. And if you are, I guess it wouldn't be Woodward because he's leaving. If you're whoever's in charge now, you have to be thinking, we've pumped so much money in. This was a moment to get a trophy. It's now been, what, two or three years? And it, it might be time to, to make a change. One thing that we should look at this game and say is that Bruno Fernandes was maybe the worst player on the pitch for both teams. Actually, I'm pretty sure he was the worst player on the pitch for both teams. Nothing he tried really came off. He I think Rashford that... was the worst. But but Rashford is the excuse of playing through an injury this season. Yeah, well, I, mean, that, I don't know what's yeah. going on with Bruno, but he was definitely disappointing as well. Yeah. So the two biggest players, perhaps, on the on, on United's team didn't perform. And, like, credit to Cavani, because the dude has scored goals this year, and he's earned his extension for next year. But you should not be relying on a 34-year-old to carry your team in a European final, looking at how this United squad is composed. But do, do, do you guys think it was an error? to So in the last, you know, few months, honestly, we've been seeing Pogba kind of playing a inside cam role from the left wing a little bit do you think it was an error to abandon the like McTominay and Fred and Pogba positioning for this and have Pogba play as one of the midfield too I think yes because I think having Pogba next to Bruno as like a pseudo you know left midfielder can drift into the midfield as well really helps Bruno I also think that Fred I heard was coming into this game injured which is why he didn't start from the off but I definitely think that you know Bruno was definitely missing someone to link up with he got really isolated in this game he didn't really couldn't find any willing runners ahead of him he didn't really have anyone to pass to next to him he was really all on his lonesome so all he could do is like recycle the ball and drop in deep if you're Ole now this is this summer and I think the first like three months of next season are really particularly the Champions League group stages which United spectacularly flopped in uh, last season I think this is like make or break time he's officially been at the club longer than Jose Mourinho longer than Louis van Gaal and this is the season in which United fans and I expect you know the United board will really want to see the fruits of his labor and his player development of the likes of the guys like Mason Greenwood Marcus Rashford Harry Maguire who United have been missing clearly missing in this last month of the season through injury. I just think that there are so many top tier managers available right now, as we're going to get onto with our next topic. Can, can United afford to keep Ole Gunnar Solskjaer who has now failed in four semifinals and lost the final to a team that was far less superior than the one that he put out there. I think that is like a huge question. Do we want to use this as the transition into the sort of managerial carousel? Because I think it's sort of a natural jumping off point. I think the last time we had a really serious discussion about sort of the nature of managerial changes was when we were recording the week that Chelsea sacked Lampard. And I think it's interesting because my opinion on what United should do has dramatically shifted and not necessarily entirely because of the success of Tuchel, but partially I really do think this is the time for United to be cutthroat and to sack Ole. And maybe it's unfair to him a little bit because he did just overachieve and bring this team to second place in the league. But I don't think that this team 
is second place material. I think if Liverpool were fully fit, they would have, you know, finished miles ahead of this United team. Only finished five points off them. Right. Which is shocking. And I think if Chelsea had had Tuchel for the whole year, you know, United would have been in the Europa League. With the amount of high quality managers who are available right now and seeing that this game is the epitome of the stagnation that we have been accustomed to under the majority of Ole's career as a United manager, I would cut, I would sack him now. I would sack him now. I would let the new manager come in and have the entire summer to work and build a squad and make some of the key decisions involving contracts and the big name players that have been rumored to be on the move for a while. And I would go from there. I think you have Champions League right now. They're back in the Champions League. It's a great jumping off point because you have that extra hundred million or so to invest. I Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> that's my take. And, and it's weird because normally I'm all in the camp of, you know, giving these guys more time. Something suggests that this is Ole's peak. And I think if he had won this game, it would be different. Yeah, Caleb, let's talk about the managerial merry-go-round. Maybe like not in the context of Manchester United, or if you want to piggyback off of what Nathan was saying, please. But I think in this past week, we've seen a lot of big clubs shift things around in monumentous fashion. Obviously, Zinedine Zidane has walked away from Real Madrid, and there was kind of a you know bomb dropped in AS today uh, in the form of an open letter that Zidane wrote to the fans of Madrid expressing the fact that he's not leaving on good terms with Florentino Perez. He feels like not enough investment was put into the squad for the goals that he wanted to achieve. And also, whenever Madrid would get an unfavorable result, uh, the club would leak out negative information to the press, which is wild that Zinedine Zidane, would, uh, a Real Madrid legend, would kind of indict Perez and the club for doing something like that. So that, that holds a lot of water, in my opinion. We have seen Antonio Conte walk away from Inter Milan following meetings with the Suning group who look like they need to cut some serious costs at Inter following their Scudetto win. And we have also heard reports that Maurizio Pochettino is looking to walk away from the PSG job after only being there for around five months now. Andrea Pirlo out the door at Juventus and Massimiliano Allegri has been reappointed uh, in sort of a Thanosian fashion in which he's kind of been waiting on the, the, the rocky steps of the Allianz Stadium in Turin and uh, is sort of saying, um, I forget what Thanos' quote is, but I, you guys know what I'm talking about. It's that scene from Avengers Endgame. Yeah, like, look at what you've done with your failure. It has led you back to me. And indeed it has. Dude, I... I don't know what's going on. I don't. First off, what is wrong with the owners of big clubs in Spain or the chairman rooting against their team in various ways? I just don't get it. First, it was Bartomeu with his like fake Twitter account going after Messi for some reason. Now it's Perez who's like leaking stuff to the press against his own manager when everything Zidane said in that AS like essay was so obviously true. Like, you can't tell me by looking at this Madrid team that it has, like, received large investments into the squad's future. Like, where? Like, maybe 10 years ago that was true. I'm <laughs> So, I don't blame Zidane. And plus, Zidane also came back on, like, completely out of his own goodwill, right? He was ready to, like, ride off into... I don't know if you know he was 
even going to manage another club. The man doesn't need to manage again. He does not need to manage. Yeah. The man was like, I've done my stuff. I've won like three or four Champions Leagues, whatever. I've won a La Liga and I'm good. And then Perez mismanaged things so badly for a little bit that Zidane was like, fine. Like, I'll come back, even though you're selling Cristiano Ronaldo, selling all of the squad midfielders, not giving people new contracts. And like, is David Alaba really enough to make him stay? I don't think so. I'm not really sure what David Alaba adds, to be honest. Ugh, I don't get it. Uh, yeah, I mean, speaking of David Alaba, the fact that they were basically willing to double the wages of any other team that were in the running for him, I think is pretty... It's a pretty damning indictment of how Real Madrid have run. Um, because I think we can all agree to a certain extent that this Madrid team needs a serious rebuild. And the way you do that is not by giving $24 million a year to a defender who's almost 30. Is he actually, yeah. is he 30 or is he 29? I think Either he's way. 20 or 29. But point being, it's like they already have their left back in Freeland Mendy. And arguably, they have their center back pairing in Varane and Militao. And so bringing in Alaba probably just, you know, delays the development of Militao. Now you have issues of where does Nacho play? There are still questions about right back in this team with Carvajal's injury. They haven't given Lucas Vazquez, who's probably been one of their best players, a new contract. Odrio Zola is clearly not up to it. Like, there are a lot of issues. Plus, once again, the average age of their midfield is like 40. <laughs> <laughs> i think it's like i think it's like 31 but that's pretty much 40 yeah, pretty, yeah you know I, I get the point yeah uh i imagine when i turn 31 i'll feel pretty much 40 so <laughs> i i feel 40 <laughs> now almost, yeah, i feel no. 40 now <laughs> yeah um no so the whole sedan thing whatever and then Conte, how do you win the Scudetto and then are like, okay, time to dismantle this team that has so much room to grow? I think they quite literally don't have money. I think that's the that's the thing with Conte. I think it's very much oh. not like a, a personal vendetta thing because Conte yeah. still has a good relationship yeah. with Paratici, yeah. who is it not, yeah. not Paratici. Actually, I have a lot of respect for Conte because he's just like, I have certain criteria that need to be met for me to be willing to take on a project. And you simply aren't meeting the criteria. And so I'm out, even though I just like won something for you. I actually respect that. I think a Conte, lot. a lot of what Conte wants to, wanted to do next season, to my understanding, and I completely agree with him, is that he does not, well, for all the league titles that he's won around Europe, he has not really performed in the Champions League. And I think he saw, you know, the future progression of this inter team. You know, he only has one, he only had one year left on his contract. I think he wanted to make a big splash in the Champions League next season. And if he had to cut 100 million euros worth of players, like there was no way that he was going to be able to reasonably compete in the Champions League next season. So he said, you know, I might as well, you know, take my 7 million, like agreed severance pay and just kind of walk and see what other jobs are available. Like it's a pretty good time to be a free agent manager right now and not have to deal with, you know, the financial constraints of the pandemic. Yeah, but I think the good thing is Conte has nothing to prove. And I think he's in a sort of rarefied class of free agent manager who has quite literally overachieved or at the very least achieved at every job he's been at over a certain period of time. Literally think, every job. No, seriously. Literally think, every job. And I think Victor Moses is a Premier League champion because of this man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this I man just want that will be. Conte can win as many trophies as humanly possible throughout the entirety of his career. 
I think that is going to be the thing at the end of the day that he hangs his hat on. He was like, I took Victor Moses and Marcus Alonso to the Premier League title. Point being, I think that any team in the world would be improved with maybe any team in the world that is looking for a manager would be instantly improved by having Conte. And he has the luxury. Yeah, he has the luxury of basically being able to say, like, look, if you hire me, you know my system. You know exactly what players I'm going to try to buy. And I have to be given a certain amount of leeway, but I will be guaranteeing your results, whether it be this year or the next. Like, this man just dethroned Juve with fucking Ashley Young as a left wing back. Like, no, seriously, like, he is one of the best managers in the world. Okay, and so let's... the fact that he's a... Okay, Kale, go ahead. No, okay. So, okay, so we've established there are a few managers looking for places. Let's talk about the places that need managing. Tottenham Hotspur, Barcelona, I think, we'll find out in a week or two, too, even though all the Dutch players want Komen to stay. What other teams are in need of some managing? Is PSG going to have an opening? Is Pochettino going to walk? I think the next, I think the next sort of walk. layer, yeah, I think the next sort of layer of teams is the sort of, like, United PSG teams that currently have managers, but... Napoli. Yeah, Napoli as well. Okay, so let's let's place some of these people. Where do you think Conte ends up? Does he Tottenham. end up at Man U? You think he takes think on he Tottenham, could, really? I think he could end up at Tottenham, to be honest. I think that is... Because if you're hiring Conte, right, I think the only real issue would be, are you going to give him enough money to get you know the players that he really needs to execute his vision? And I think if you're Daniel Levy, there's no argument that you that he wouldn't do that because he did that somewhat for Mourinho. Like he got Mourinho the players that Mourinho wanted. And I think if you're if you're Conte who has a far more illustrious CV in the past 7 years as a coach than Mourinho, I think I think Levy would be up for for you know leaving it all in in the hands of of Conte. I think the tough thing is that like once Levy starts denying Conte what he wants, there's going to be like fist fights in the boardroom because that's just like <laughs> the, the type of people that these guys are. Like Conte, like the, we love. I love Antonio Conte. Antonio Conte is one of my like favorite soccer personalities in the world. He is a very fiery individual, and he is either like his way or the highway. And to be fair to him, like his way works like very frequently. Him and Daniel Levy, like that match either works really well or it ends in like one of them murdering each other. I think Levy would probably lose that particular battle. Yes, I agree. <laughs> and I also think so I actually, if you want to convince Harry Kane to stay, you, you get someone in like Antonio Conte. No, nah, there's no convincing. There's no convincing. He's yeah, gone. Caleb, I'm with you. I think, I think Pochettino returns to Spurs and we see it. I guess we get to, we get to use the, the, the Thanos meme again. Um, you know, the where did this bring you back to me thing? Um, I don't know but, why that. Wait, can someone explain to me? Maybe I just missed something. Why does he want out of PSG? Because the, the first of all, I think Leonardo is a bitch. Yeah, he sucks. He, so he's, <laughs> he, he is, <laughs> he, he's not good. I've read some stuff I, and like some like French media surrounding like it's it's like not the PSG managerial job is yeah, like dude, not great right now dude, you're well, you you're just, pretty much you like you can't be an ideologue there you really just can't because you know that this team is so bound to their you know i guess the the parisian galacticos and you know that neymar is going to want to play in a certain role you just can't 
That's why I don't think Conte would make any sort of sense at PSG, even if Hakimi nope. winds up there. Because you just don't... First of all, because tactics don't matter except for 16 to 20 games a year in the Champions League. And the expectation of winning is such that it really is just a lose-lose situation unless you are a younger manager who has shown promise, I guess, because it's a good place to sort of hone your skills. But it's not a good place for an established manager who knows what they want to do. Like, it makes no sense. Um, yeah, It also that's... sounds like at PSG, you're very much a head coach, not a manager. Like, you don't have a real say on, like, personnel or contract extensions or players you want to keep, players you want to sell, players you want to bring in. Maybe a little bit here and there, but Thomas Tuchel wanted you know, several select players for his team and he never got them. Like he was begging for a center back. He was begging for Antonio Rudiger. Didn't get him, even though Antonio Rudiger would have been like fairly inexpensive to PSG at the time. I think Maurizio Pochettino is probably finding a lot of those similar problems. And I think from what we were able to see at Southampton and Spurs, Pochettino really values having his, you know, holistic interpretation being enacted on a club. Um, any club that he is currently managing. And I think his system really has to be, you know, the defining feature of, of any team that he's coaching. And I don't think he's, I don't think he's finding that to be the case in PSG or at PSG. And I think that's probably why, like you're looking at him going back to a familiar situation in Tottenham. I do think it's, it would be a bad move for him, to be honest. I don't think there's been enough time for, you know, the wounds between him and Levy to heal I don't think there's been enough time for him to really, you know, evolve and grow as a coach for that squad to evolve and grow as players. I think maybe there'd be a little bit of a balance, but eventually I would think they would, I think they would end up, you know, making a lot of the same mistakes as they made towards the end of his reign the first time. But it definitely could be, you know, I keep talking about like scenarios in which Harry Kane could stay. I could, Harry Kane loves Maurizio Pochettino. And I could see if, if Pochettino is brought back, you know, Kane would probably you know, at least consider sticking around. Or I'll give you another scenario. All of this is like a total smokescreen. Pochettino wants to leave PSG and it's just people in London, like, you know, winding themselves up that he'll go back. Pochettino instead goes to United and Harry Kane joins him there. Caleb, my face would melt. <laughs> that would piss me off so much. Well, it's interesting much. because well, well, remember when Pochettino was sacked, we were all like, oh, United should be making this call right now. Like, I, I just don't see Pochettino going back to Spurs where, like, Spurs are in a worse position than when he left. That wouldn't be positive because then he'll do poorly. He'll have to play in this stupid... Are Spurs in the Conference League? Are they in the Europa League? I don't even know. They're in the Conference League. Okay, so they're going to be playing literally teams... Uh, Union Berlin. Name. No disrespect to Union Berlin, but, like, Union Berlin. <laughs> okay, I can name them. But, like, they'll be playing, like... Roma relegation threatened Azerbaijani team. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Union Berlin, Roma in relegation threatened Azerbaijani teams. Maybe some teams from the Belarusian league. No, yeah, actually, I think Torpedo play in the Conference League. <laughs> They're gonna come up against Torpedo. <laughs> <laughs> we have to travel for that one. Oh my god! For that game, dude, I, yeah, you that. have the kit. You're probably the only person in this continent who has a torpedo That's, kit. Oh, I am certainly, I am certainly, unless there's like little Belarus in like. <laughs> <laughs> we have to explain this. 
<laughs> Nick, do you remember that time when we went and watched the we watched Italy play in Holy like shit, Little Italy? Dude. We're gonna find that we're gonna find like the one Belarusian sports bar. They're just playing like the Torpedo Bellas channel like on repeat. Well, and they're still using a stream, right? Like <laughs> we have to explain this joke though. So <laughs> last season, as we were bringing the podcast back during the pandemic, uh, the only league that was playing <laughs> in around like March 2020 was the Belarusian League against all odds. So we got like heavily invested in the Belarusian League for a few weeks. And the team that Caleb picked to um, do to win it all in the Belarusian League, Torpedo, ended up uh, actually lifting the trophy come the end of the season. And then Nathan and I gifted him Somehow, Nathan is a master at finding soccer <laughs> kits online. And he, we, we, he found a, a torpedo kit and we gifted it to him for his birthday. So I think he is quite literally one of the only people, you know, uh, in a country not run by a dictator to have a, <laughs> a, a torpedo kit, which is kind of miraculous. But yeah, I think, Caleb, you're, you're very much right in that. I think the Tottenham job is one that they're clearly having a hard time trying to fill. Like it, it, I don't even know who they're in talks with anymore. If it's the front runner is still Graham Potter, you know, if Maurizio, how far along the talks with Mauricio Pochettino are, if they're even eyeing up Antonio Conte, I don't even know. So I think that Spurs are really quite fucked. <laughs> My because... Richards. <laughs> yeah, dude, that was funny. I think Spurs are really pretty fucked. And I think a lot of the times when teams have historically bad years like even arsenal and liverpool i think for the majority of this year they use their youth products as a way to sort of get something good out of a bad situation like liverpool dealt with their injury crisis by not just signing a young player but also promoting from within and letting players like both williams williams's uh, nat phillips curtis jones etc take bigger roles than I think they would have had otherwise. And Arsenal, over the last two or three years, and what has been a pretty prolonged downturn, have unearthed players like Bukayo Saka and Emile Smith-Rowe. But Spurs, in this year and last year, which I think have been their decline, don't really have a single youth player who has been either given minutes or shown that they have the quality to sort of break into this team. And that's like kind of the Mourinho effect. Well, it is. No, it's 100% the Mourinho effect. Um, but it really, I think they're really pretty fucked. Like, you know, Troy Parrott was thought of at one point as, you know, maybe a potential academy player who could make that jump. But you look at their academy and you think about the kind of players that they've produced. And is Alfie Devine going to be that guy? Is Jamie Bowden going to be that guy? Or are they just going to become the next iteration of Harry Winks? Or even a guy like Jafet Tanganga, Tanyanya, who I think has been decent as well. So I think Spurs are in a really, really bad situation. Um, and I don't know where they go from here. And I don't, I don't know that returning to Pochettino is the right move. But it would certainly be entertaining, if nothing else. I think the summary of all this is that there's a lot of managerial choices up in the air. And it'll be a busy summer. I think before we close, I was hoping we could have a short discussion on the first somewhat expected but still big transfer of the summer. Today, Barcelona unveiled Kun Aguero. I have thoughts on this, about what this means. You guys probably have similar thoughts, but can we just take a quick minute before the show ends to discuss this signing for Barcelona? 
So a few things. Barcelona needed a striker after this season. That was very clear. And also it's very clear that they don't have the money to really sign one at this time for you know a transfer fee. It looks like they're targeting a lot of players on free contracts. Jorginho Wijnaldum, Eric Garcia, uh, Memphis Depay. It's really interesting to me that Barcelona have spent the past four or so years running all of Lionel Messi's best friends out of the club. You know, you look at Danny Alves, you look at uh, Luis Suarez, um, Arturo Vidal, obviously like wasn't a fit for Barcelona, but very much was, you know, friends with Leo Messi. I think it's just kind of clear that there's like no, and it's now becoming like more and more evident too that Messi is probably going to stick around. You know, even though Laporta is a step in the right direction from Bartomeu, it's very clear that like Laporta is now sort of coming to the understanding that this is like going to be a huge job to try and turn this Barcelona team around. And they don't exactly have the resources to do that. But a huge priority is keeping Messi happy and hoping that Messi resigns. So what they're going to try and do is sign the guy who has been his roommate since he was 18 years old with the Argentinian national team. And even though, you know, has significant injury problems as he's approaching 33 years old, will probably get them around, you know, 10 to 15 goals next season if he stays, you know, even like 40% fit. It's an okay transfer, but I think it still leaves like a lot of questions about, you know, the way Barcelona is being run at the club and like what the real policy is of this team. Yeah, I mean, really, this this signing of Aguero just makes me think that Barcelona should never have sold Suarez in the first place. Um, and, you know, as far as a stopgap move, I think it's fine. Like, I understand why Barcelona want to make the most of what should really be the last couple of years of Leo Messi. But again, it's not exactly the kind of move that inspires a ton of confidence going forwards, because obviously Barcelona need to get a little bit younger and they need to, I mean, I would have loved to see them, you know, in an ideal world, in a, in a FIFA career mode, see them sign someone like Lautaro Martinez instead. I don't know. I think it's a fine move. I think clearly Aguero and Messi enjoy playing together. Um, and assuming Aguero can stay relatively injury free, I think it positions him in line to score, you know, 15 plus goals next year um, for a Barcelona team that should be a little bit rejuvenated. But um, you know, especially with guys like Ansu Fati coming back, which I think is going to be a bigger boost than many people anticipate. But by and large, signing players on freeze, it works for a few years. Like, look at Juve. But once their times are up because of age, because of moving on for whatever reason, uh, it does not leave you in a good place because they are not saleable assets. So I don't know. I think it sort of is what it is. Like, it's a good pickup for now. But if it doesn't work out, then Barcelona are again you know, up Schitt's Creek without a paddle, which is, I think, somewhat inevitable in a few years. Fair Caleb, enough. what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I think I agree with, with pretty much everything you guys have said. I think, yeah, one, this indicates to me that, that Messi is staying, or at least Laporta recognizes that personnel are a big influence on whatever choice Messi is going to make. Two, I think it indicates that we simply don't have the money to make any type of push for a player like Holland this summer. And that suggests to me that he'll probably stick at Dortmund for one more year and maybe we'll see him in 2022, 2023. And I think this is actually, I think I was kind of against this move from like a player, like actually like the game perspective. But seeing the fact that Aguero spent most of the season on the bench at City, 
I think having him be a like an upgrade for Martin Braithwaite is like a total positive. Like if you told me that now I can have Aguero coming off the bench instead of Martin Braithwaite, I'd be like, oh, that's fantastic. I do think it raises some interesting questions about Griezmann's role in the team this coming year, especially if we also sign Memphis Depay on a free. But if at the end of the day, all this does is mean Messi sticks around, I am 100% for it. So we shall see. And at the very least, it looks like Barcelona's squad is going to be better next season. Like Gino Wijnaldum is a big upgrade on Marilyn Pjanic in the midfield, even as like a rotational option. Um, Memphis Depay is a great asset to have coming on off the bench or even if he starts. And obviously like Sergio Aguero is like one of the greatest strikers of the modern era. Like it's not, it's never going to be like a net negative signing him. I I just think it, it like raises some questions about, you know, what, what like the priorities are for Barcelona, you know, who, what, what is like, we thought like this was going to be like a whole scale, you know, reevaluation of what Barcelona's identity is right now. And it looks like that's going to be like a little more complicated than we perhaps thought it was going to be. Yeah. So I think that probably brings us up to the end of what we have time for, but we can look forward to more conversations on the Euros once we know the final squads and also more. Well, before, before we go, before we go, I just want to ask before we even do a deep dive Euro preview, who are your favorites for the Euros and who are your dark horses for the Euros? You're kind of sneaky teams that may do well oh man this answer would have been so different if this had been if this tournament had taken place last year pre-coman moving to barca but um i think the favorites are just objectively france like they have to be considered the favorites i don't really think that there's much room for debate there um and my dark horse would be i don't know if it's fair to call them a dark horse because of how good they have been since all of us were born but spain I really think that this could be a tournament where Spain struggle at the beginning and then really find their rhythm as the tournament goes on. Um, and yeah, those are, those are my picks. I'll keep it brief. Yeah, my pick is also France. I mean, I wish it wasn't France necessarily, but it, they're just so superior to everyone else right now, even though they're not first in the FIFA rankings, and that's Belgium. Um, but I think depending on if De Bruyne will be fully fit after having that facial fracture and whether he'll be able to play, I I am more down on Belgium. And I also don't think their defense is all that great um, now that they've sort of moved past the the Vincent Company era. In terms of my dark horse, once again, I don't know if this really counts as a dark horse, but Portugal have so many players in their squad that have scored so many goals this year. I think they have three that have 25-plus goals, Bruno Fernandes, Andre Silva, and Cristiano Ronaldo. And so I think they are a pretty balanced team from front to back and should not be underestimated. Yeah, I I have to go with the clean sweep of France here. Biased France fan, obviously. Uh, But I just think with Karim Benzema being brought back into the fold, they understand the need to capitalize on this strength and depth and this momentum that this team has. However, my dark horse, and this is kind of an interesting one, is Roberto Mancini's Italy. I think the faith that he has placed in the younger players in this team has yielded really good results in the qualifying stages of this tournament. 
Nicola Barella, Chiesa, um, Orsolini, Mancini, Gianluca, the center back, no relation. Um, I think there's a lot of he he has there's the potential for a lot of names to be made for Italian football at this tournament. I also think they play a really really interesting four three three, very progressive, lots of movement. They're going to be a fun team to watch at this tournament. I don't think they're going to win. Probably won't even make like the semifinals. Maybe they'll make the quarterfinals like they did under Conte. Uh, I also think Mancini is probably one of the better managers at this tournament. Uh, probably him and Luis Enrique are the best managers coming into this tournament, I would say. Uh, I just think that Italy, you know, not enough people are talking about them right now. And I think they have a lot of talents. And I think a lot of a lot of household names are going to be made in Italian football at this tournament. But yeah, Italy, Italy are my um, my underdog pick, shall we say. Anyways, that's going to bring us to the end of our show. Like Caleb indicated, we are going to come back with a more comprehensive look at Euro 2020, Euro 2021. Really yet to be decided what we're going to call it. I guess Euro 2020. I think that's the branding that they're using, right? Uh, I don't know. Why don't we call it the Euro 2020s? Okay, I like that. The We're going to come back to you with a comprehensive preview of the Euro 2020s. We're also going to look at the Copa America which also, which, which shockingly was moved to Brazil today uh, against all odds. That's going to be a pretty wild story to discuss in the coming uh, days or weeks. I have been Nick Vinden. Caleb Reds. Nathan Strauss. And we will see you all next time. <laughs>